The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. Welcome, Bereans. Appreciate you being here today. Um, We're going to continue our study in 3 John this morning. And this letter... Unlike 2 John, which is a letter written to the church. Remember, 1 John was a circular letter. It was to be handed around a bunch of churches. 2 John was written to a church. But this letter, 3 John, is written to Gaius. Now, this is probably the most personal letter in the New Testament. It's also the shortest letter in the New Testament with only 219 Greek words. Anybody know what the longest letter in the New Testament is? Any guesses? The longest letter. No, it's not Jude. (laughs) Not Revelation. It's Romans. Romans is the longest letter. So we've done the longest letter. Now we're doing the shortest, all right? And we'll try to get everything in between, all right? Now, if you can remember back to our study of 2 John, that was a little bit ago. You'll remember that it was addressed to the elect lady, all right, which is a personification for a particular local church as a lady, and the Christians in it are their, her children. Now, John was writing that letter to warn his children that they should not admit false teachers into the church fellowship. So she was warned, the church, she was given critique whereby she might know whether a person was a true or a false teacher. Well, now in 3 John, this is like a mirror image of 2 John in that it's the opposite in the sense that John is writing to a man called Gaius, and Gaius is being commended for the very fact that he has admitted teachers into the church of Yeshua where he resided. Rather than a prohibition given by John to Gaius, there is in fact a commendation and a warning that he should never refuse admittance to those who are true teachers and preachers of the truth. Now the contrast between these two letters is interesting. In one we are told to refuse the false, in the other we're told to receive what is true. And this letter basically revolves around three men, Gaius, Diotrephes, and Demetrius. And we'll go through these as we go through the letter, and he focuses on each one of them. Now, Colin Krauss, in the Pillar New Testament commentary, says this about this epistle. He said, The letter written by the elder to his friend Gaius has essentially three functions. Number one, to reinforce Gaius's commitment to the noble work of providing hospitality to traveling missionaries, something he was already doing. So that's what he does to Gaius. He's commending him. And secondly, to draw attention to the intolerable behavior of Diotrephes and to foreshadow the steps he intends to take in response to it. So then he goes to the next guy, Diotrephes. And then thirdly, to commend Demetrius. So that kind of breaks down what this is about. Now, the first eight verses of this epistle set forth the apostles' approval of Gaius. This little epistle begins, as all epistles, with the salutation He says, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Now, the elder here, this tells us immediately who the letter is from. 
I like the way they do this. You know, in our letters, we sign them at the bottom, and you've got to read the whole letter to figure out who even, who we even, you know. And sometimes you think it's from somebody, and you're reading it, you don't understand until you get to the, oh, that's from so-and-so. Now I understand it, okay? So who is this elder? Well, discussion of the authorship of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John are intrinsically linked to the discussion of the authorship of the fourth gospel. Uh, the vast majority of modern scholars recognizing the similarity among all the Johannian writers, writings, they believe that the Gospel of John and these letters all have a common authorship. There are many similarities between them, especially the phrasing, vocabulary, grammatical forms, and doctrine. So according to church tradition, the Apostle John wrote the fourth Gospel, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. But I'm going to ask you to ignore tradition for just a moment. All right? Sometimes that's a really good thing to do. Okay? Not all tradition is bad. But sometimes tradition can lead us down the wrong way. So let's, let's put tradition aside for a second and focus on the Scriptures themselves and see um, if the Apostle John is truly the author. You know, because the, actually we are told in the fourth gospel who wrote this. In John 21, 20, he says, Peter turned and saw the disciple who Yeshua loved, following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper, and he said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? Now, here the author mentions this disciple whom Yeshua loved. Everybody just says, well, this is the Apostle John, right? He's the Apostle of love. But then he states later in the letter, he, in a couple of verses down, he says this in 21, he says, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. So he mentioned the disciple whom Yeshua loved, and then he states, this is the, the disciple. And the antecedent of this goes back to verse 21, 20, to the disciple. This is the disciple. And he says, who has written this letter? So the disciple who wrote the letter is this disciple. It's the one that Yeshua loved. Now, so we know who, the, who, we know who wrote it. Okay, the disciple whom Yeshua loved. So all I have to do is figure out who is that, right? Does the Bible say anywhere that John, the Apostle John, was the disciple whom Yeshua loved? No, it does not. Does the Bible explicitly name anybody who was loved by Yeshua? Uh, it just happens to do that, yes. And you know, this is what's interesting. There is only one man named in the Bible who is said to be loved by Yeshua. That kind of narrows down the field for us, doesn't it? In John chapter 11 particularly, verses 1 through 3, verse 5 and verse 36, it tells us that Lazarus' sister said that Yeshua loved him. And then the inspired author said, Yeshua loved Lazarus. And then the Jews said, Yeshua loved Lazarus. It seems to me the Spirit of God is going to great lengths in John 11 to make known that Yeshua loved Lazarus. Now here's the thing, people. Lazarus is the only man named in the Bible who was specifically identified as being loved by Yeshua. So it's my contention that the disciple whom Yeshua loved is Lazarus. And it's Lazarus who wrote the fourth gospel, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. 
Now, you, if you want more information on this, go back to the Gospel of John. The very first message on the Gospel of John was on authorship, and I basically spent the whole time there developing this idea that Lazarus, a.k.a. John Eleazar, was the one who wrote these, this Gospel and these epistles. So, go back and look. I think, I said, if we could set aside tradition for a minute, the Scriptures seem very clear that who, this is who wrote these Gospels. Now, why does Lazarus call himself the elder? Some say that he is using this to refer to himself as an old man. I don't buy that at all. Hey, I'm the old man's writing to you. That, that really doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, I think that Lazarus was referring to himself here by the title elder as a leader in the church. See, the Greek for elder here is presbuteros. It's used here and in 2 John to identify the author. And only in those two places in the New Testament does the word elder appear in the singular. That's important. Churches always had elders. Always a plurality. So only here do we find it in the singular because it deals with one man who is referring to himself. So he calls himself an elder. The term elder is synonymous in Scripture with the term pastor and the term bishop. We see this in Acts chapter 20. He says, From Miletus he sent to Ephesus, and he called the elders of the church. Now the word elder here is presbuteros again, and you notice that it's in the plural because he's calling the plural elders of Ephesus to come. And then if you drop down to verse 28, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves, and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. The word overseers here is episkopos. And the word care here is poimeno, which means to shepherd. So the term elder, overseer, bishop, pastor, shepherd, they're used interchangeably in the New Testament to refer to church leaders. Pastor is only really mentioned once, but that's the title we seem to have grabbed onto and hung onto. Elders use way more times. I think that Lazarus is using this in this way to refer to himself as a church leader. If this letter was written by the Apostle John, why didn't he present himself as the Apostle to the beloved Gaius? Paul does that all the time. Paul, an Apostle, of Yeshua the Christ. Why, doesn't he do, why didn't John do that, call himself an apostle? I think it's probably because he wasn't one. Okay? He was an elder, so he says, hey, I'm an elder in the church. Now, I said earlier, churches always had elders, always a plurality. This is because church leadership is to be a team effort. It's not the sole responsibility of one man. I can't think of anything more dangerous than that in the church. I really can't. And it's, not, it's also not supposed to be the joint responsibility of everybody. You know, some churches are congregational rule. Everybody gets to say what happens. Other churches, it's pastor rule. The pastor decides everything and you just go along, okay? The norm for the New Testament was a plurality. And there's no reference in all the New Testament of a one-pastor congregation. And the reason for this is human leaders, even Christians, are sinful and they only accomplish God's will imperfectly. 
Multiple leaders, therefore, will serve as a check and a balance to each other and serve as a safeguard against a very human tendency to play God over other people. Within a plurality of leaders, you have extreme ideas that are tempered, you have harsh judgments that are moderated, and you have doctrinal imbalances that are corrected. And I believe the New Testament pattern is that the church be led by a plurality of men. And we believe that if God is working in the church and moving through the plurality of men, then it's not majority rules, it's we all need to be on the same page. Okay, or if we're going to proceed in, down a certain path, go a certain way. You know, if God is calling us to do this, then we all should be involved in it and go along with it. I'll tell you, I, to me, I don't think there's anything more comforting than the idea of a plurality of leadership. You're not out there by yourself. You're not getting blamed for everything that goes wrong. Hey, it's there all, we all decided that. You know, that's comforting. You have to do something. you got a group together that works together, and I just think that's the way it's supposed to be. I think the Bible is very clear about that. There's no mention of a one-man pastor. All right? It's plurality. Now, that's not how most of the church operates today, but I think that's the biblical. All right, the elder says, To the beloved Gaius. Beloved here is from the Greek agapetos. It's a a term which reflects affection. You know, John often calls his readers by affectionate terms, but this term here, agapetos, is really significant because this phrase is used by the Father to refer to Yeshua at His baptism and at the transfiguration. It's a common designation of the saved in John's letter. They're beloved. And here's what I need you all to understand. Everybody who has trusted Christ is beloved. Okay? Look at Colossians 3.12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. All Christians are elect of God. All Christians are holy and beloved. So Gaius is loved by Yahweh, and he's loved by John. And so John writes this personal letter to Gaius, even though there's... Now this is what... Get this, because I think this kind of is important here. He's writing this letter to Gaius, but there's no indication that he is the head of this house church, or that he holds any position of authority in the church at all. He's just writing to one of the people in the church, saying, man, you're doing a great job. You know, receiving these itinerant preachers who are coming by. You're showing them hospitality. You're taking care of them. You're putting them up. That is awesome. I appreciate what you're doing. He's just, he's writing to a person in the church. I I think that's cool to me. It's powerful, you know. It's Gaius. So who's Gaius? Well, this is a very common name in the Greek world, okay? It's one of the most common names, they said, in the Roman Empire. There's several Gaiuses named in the New Testament. There's Gaius of Macedonia, who together with Aristarchus was seized by the riding mob at Ephesus. We read of him in Acts 19.29. And this is probably the same Gaius who accompanied Paul on his last trip to Jerusalem. He formed part of the group of delegates that presented the offering from the Gentile churches to the church in Judea. Now, we read of him in Acts uh, chapter 20, verse 4. Also in 1 Corinthians 1.14, Paul speaks of Gaius as one of the few people that he himself baptized in Corinth. And that's probably the same Gaius that Paul mentions in Romans 16.23 uh, as his host at, in Corinth there. 
So as far as we know, there's no relationship between this Gaius and the other Gaiuses. We just don't know that much about him. We don't know anything about him more than we have right here in this epistle. But we do learn some important things about his character in these verses. It's obvious that this is a person who is well known to John. But it's not really certain whether they had ever met personally or not. So how does he know him? Well, because report came back from people who were traveling back and forth telling Paul about him. And we'll see that in the scripture in just a minute. But so people are reporting, going back to John, and they're reporting about his conduct, saying, man, there's a guy in the church over there. He's awesome. He's receiving these teachers. He's putting them up. He's taking care of them. He's really promoting the cause. And he says, John says, I love in the truth. Um, As in all of John's writing, Love and truth, he talks both about those. Truth is a central concept in 3 John. He mentions it in verse 1, twice in verse 3, in verse 4, verse 8, and 12, plus the word true is in verse 12. So six times in these 15 verses we find the Greek word aletheia, meaning truth, and once we see the word aletheis, meaning true, for a total of seven times, the number of perfection, the number of totality, seven times he talks about the truth. Now, the truth can refer to probably one of two things here in this letter. It could be a reference to the Holy Spirit, who's called the Spirit of Truth in John 14, 17. Or it is called the Spirit of Truth primarily because he communicates the truth. But I think John may be referring here to Yeshua himself. And he says, you know, I love you in Christ. I love you in Yeshua. Look at John 14, 6. Yeshua said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Now, commenting on this, Hall Harris writes this on this verse. He says, however, the context suggests that the three ideas are not strictly coordinate. The next statement, no one comes to the Father except through me, seems to relate primarily to the first predicate, I am the way. Thus, we suggest that the two remaining predicates, the truth and the life, are ex-epigetical or explanatory to the first, I am the way, that is the truth, and the life. So when Yeshua says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, Yeshua is the way to God because He is the truth from God and the life from God. He is the truth because He embodies God's supreme revelation. The way to the Father is Yeshua. The way to the truth about the Father is Yeshua. The way to life of God is Yeshua. For John, the concept of truth centers on the person of Christ. It's all about Him. In John 4, 23 and 24, Yeshua explained that the Father seeks those who worship Him in spirit and in truth. In John 8, 32, He makes the important statement, You will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. People, that's... That statement is so true, not only in Scripture, that's true in life. Truth sets you free. Because there's so much information in our culture, people are in bondage. They literally are. You need to know the truth. You say, well, how do you find out the truth? You have to do some research, a lot of research. And you also have to be careful where your research is coming from. Follow the money. If there's a financial connection, I don't believe it. I just don't. They could be presenting the truth, but if they're profiting, I'm just like, eh, you got, a, you got an axe to grind. I don't want to know anything about this, okay? But the truth sets us free. 
I mean, in our day, people are walking around in total fear because of this COVID thing. And it's just, a, you know, it's the media that's made us fear. We don't need to fear. We talked about earlier, we got ivermectin, we got hydroxychloroquine, we got all these things that cure it. But you know what? They couldn't get an emergency vaccine if they had things that cure it. So they want to ignore those. All right. The truth sets free. I see people walking around with masks on. And I'm like, why? They don't work. I mean, the, the, there's been so many studies. The masks have no efficacy whatsoever in stopping any of this stuff. Okay? But they're telling us to do it because they want to control. We don't, I see people in a car by themselves with a mask on. I've seen people on the intercoastal waterway on a large, large boat sitting out on the sun pad. Two of them, they both had masks on. And I'm just like, the truth will set you free. Okay? It really will. But I, I do understand that. I, I, I get sad about it, but I understand it because I, they have done such a good job in, camp, in mounting a fear campaign. The people are afraid. They're just afraid. All right, let me try to get back on track here. <laughs> no extra charge for that, okay? <laughs> Yeshua refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of truth. He prayed in John 17, 17, Sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. He told the skeptical Pilate, For this I have been born, for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So truth is is a huge emphasis in Yeshua's ministry. And so it is in the ministry of John. It is about Yeshua. And contrary to current postmodern philosophy that denies absolute truth in the spiritual realm, I mean, we just can't know truth, they say, the Bible clearly affirms that there is theological and moral truth. There are absolutes. And the truth centers on the person and work of Yeshua. So when John says that he loves Gaius in the truth, he means in accord with God's truth. Both John and Gaius held to the truth as the apostles had taught it. Nothing is as important as divine truth because it is by divine truth that we come to know God. It is by divine truth that we come to know Christ, the Holy Spirit, and salvation. And the sad thing today is the church suffers from a great deficiency and discernment. And the church is so doctrinally ignorant today that it lacks the ability to sort out truth from error. It's just not being taught. People don't focus on the Word of God. They're more interested in making the people that are there feel good and go home happy so they'll come back. If we are to oppose false teachers and false doctrine, we have to know the truth. It's just as simple as that. Well, how do you learn the truth? Through a careful study of God's Word. And people, today we have so many resources at our fingertips that we can study the Word of God, we can dig into it, and we can learn. We don't need to be deceived. We're all called to be Bereans. And that means checking on everything we hear. You don't buy into things until you research it and say, yeah, that, that's what the Bible says. You know, in our current culture, it seems everyone who takes a stand for God's truth will be slandered for being unloving. Because if you're saying what God says, the culture doesn't like that. It doesn't fit, okay? 
God made man and he made woman. That was it. Now, our culture just has a problem with that today because they've invented all... I don't know how. I can't keep up with how many genders there's supposed to be now, but it's just totally crazy. All right? In this age that says doctrine divides, and beware of anybody that tells you, you know, not to preach or listen to doctrine, we need to realize that the doctrine concerning Christ is everything. And if we don't have it right, we're lost. The Bible teaches truth, one truth, and we just need to understand it. Now, Krauss tells us this about this letter. He says, following the opening greeting in Greco-Roman letters, there often followed an exordium in which the writer establishes rapport with his readers. Very often, this include a prayer or wishes for good health of the recipients and positive statements about their character and behavior. This letter follows that model. So he says that this includes a prayer or wish for good health. So this is common in these letters. So he says in verse 2, Beloved, I pray, or I wish, that all may go well with you, and that you may be in good health, as it goes with your soul. Now again, this I pray follows a typical Greek letter opening. It's a prayer wish for the recipient's prosperity and health. It was a way to greet a loved one. It's like you write today, I hope this letter finds you well. Hope you're doing good. That, that kind of thing. Now, here's the first thing that I want you to notice about what he says here. Gaius was spiritually healthy. Okay? That's the most important thing we need to get from this verse. I like the way the complete Jewish Bible translates this verse. Dear friend, I am praying that everything prosper with you and that you be in good health as I know you are prospering spiritually. That's what he's talking about. And we're going to see that in this letter. Gaius is doing well spiritually. He, he's, he's walking with the Lord. He's doing okay. So he's just saying, hey, I hope your physical health would match your spiritual health. It's a typical opening. The health wish was a standard feature of the first century epistolary format. It was never meant to be a proof text for the health, wealth, prosperity preachers. We talked last week. This is one of their proof texts. Bible texts removed from context can be used to assert anything. You know that. But here's what we have to understand. The text cannot mean today what it never meant in its own day. Okay? John's wish, his prayer for Gaius, is knowing that he's prospering spiritually, that he may physically prosper as his spirit is prospering before the Lord. John is saying, I long that your health would mirror your spiritual life. Let me ask you something, believers. What if John was praying this prayer for us and the Lord granted it? Okay? Would you like your physical condition to correspond with your spiritual condition? Would it be a blessing, or would you need to call the paramedics? You see what I'm saying? Okay? 
You know, if John prayed for this for a lot of people, some folks would die. Others would have to go to the hospital, okay? That's, you know, it's not a good thing. Wouldn't be a good thing for a lot of people. And then you have an individual like, say, Amy Carmichael, who's a missionary to India. She spent most of her later years in bed. She had physical problems her whole life, very serious physical problems. If her physical condition was to match her spiritual condition, she would have been an Olympic athlete. John Calvin, he was a frail physical existence most of his life. He too would have been extremely strong and robust if his spiritual life, or his physical life matched his spiritual life. Now it's sad that this verse has become a proof text for the health wealth gospel. They ignore the fact that the apostles and many of the prophets, not to mention Yeshua himself, were poor. They were persecuted. The proponents of this false teaching brazenly appeal to the greed and the selfishness of their spiritual naive audience. And I mean naive, because if they, these people knew the Bible at all, they would never buy into this stuff. They twist verses, verses like Isaiah 53, 5, to view their blanket coverage for physical healing for every Christian. Isaiah 53, you're familiar with Isaiah 53. It's incredible that they pull verses out of this chapter to try to support their view. He was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. What's what's the context here? It's our spiritual lives. He's not talking about your physical life. And a clear understanding of this important passage can be gleaned through a deeper evaluation of the underlying Hebrew text here. What does the text in Isaiah 53, 5 mean when he says, with his wounds we are healed? The faith movement interprets this to mean primary, the physical, while the majority of Christian scholarship is always interpreted to mean spiritual. For example, Gordon D. Fee, professor of New Testament at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, He says this, he says, it's also questionable whether the Bible teaches that healing is provided for in the atonement. Scores of texts explicitly tell us our sin has been overcome through Christ's death and resurrection. But no text explicitly says the same about healing. Not even Isaiah and the New Testament citations. So he's saying, look, there's no real evidence that you can take this verse and try to make it say that, you know, God wants you all healed. Again, it just doesn't even fit with the founders of the New Testament church. Now, Charles Fillmore, I don't know if you're familiar with that name, hopefully you're not, of the United School of Christianity, he twists the scripture to fit his prosperity doctrine. He's another health wealth preacher, and I want you to see what Fillmore did with his rendition of the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my banker. My credit is good. He maketh me to lie down in the consciousness of omnipresent abundance. He giveth me the key to his strong box. He restoreth my faith in his riches. He guideth me in the paths of prosperity for his namesake. Yea, though I walk in the very shadow of debt. I shall fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thou preparest a way for me in the presence of the collector. Thou fillest my wallet 
with plenty. My measure runneth over. Surely goodness and plenty will follow me all the days of my life, and I shall do business in the name of Yahweh forever. People, this is blasphemous. This is blasphemous that they would take the 23rd Psalm and make it all about us. Anyone familiar with Scripture knows that the attitudes he's talking about here are dangerous. All right? Look at what Paul told Timothy. He says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. Why? Because we brought nothing into the world. Everybody agree with that? And we can't take anything out of the world. You never saw a hearse pulling a U-Haul, right? But if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pains. Now notice what he says we're to be content with. But if we have food and clothing, the Greek word for food here is diatrephe, and it means nourishment, that which is needed to sustain life. The Greek word for clothing here is skeposma, and it means covering. And it's a broad term that probably includes shelter also. So the question is, are you content with the basics of life? I know none of us lack these things. This is tough for our culture that has been so corrupted with the health wealth gospel that we're not content with little or much. I mean, we are far, far, far beyond food and clothing. Right? We eat for entertainment. We possess every kind of gadget imaginable. But we're not happy. We're like Ariel. And Disney's the little mermaid who sings. I've got gadgets and gizmos aplenty. I've got who's its and what's its galore. You want thingamabobs? I got 20. But who cares? No big deal. I want more. I love that we teach this to our children. Be like Ariel. Be greedy. Be wanting more. I want more. We have it all, but we got to have more. And we have developed a concept of life that says the whole of life is a process of me meeting my needs. Where's that come from? Freud? Humanism? Which says that our existence is to satisfy ourselves. There is no God. And everyone's out to meet his own needs. The big problem is that we don't really know what our needs are. It should be clear that we're way beyond food and clothing. And I think today the problem is our culture is defining our needs. And we just want more. He said, the word pierced here, he says, some have wandered away and are pierced themselves with many pangs. means to pierce through from one end to the other as a piece of meat on a spit. You get the picture? This is a warning. You know, and I'll tell you, this the verse of the idea that the love of money being the root of all evil in the last year has come to mean so much more to me when I look at our government. I think that's what's driving them. They, can't, they don't have enough money. All these congressmen, these senators, they're filthy rich. 
They're multimillionaires. How'd they get that on, a, on their salary? They didn't. They, they got deals going all the time. And they sold their souls for these deals. And there's never enough. And it's sickening. And they don't care about this country. They don't care about us. They care about making money. Listen, it was never intended to be lifelong politicians in this country. When the founders set up the Constitution, the idea was you quit your job, you go serve a term, and then you go back. That way the people in there were people who knew how to work, who knew what life... Some of these politicians have never had a job in their life. How do we keep getting on politics? (laughs) Now let me just add here. And let me just give you a caution here. We should never make the mistake as Christians to assume that because a person is ill or has a physical condition, that that is a problem in their spiritual life. And there's an there's a area there in the health, wealth, gospel. If you're sick, oh, you must not be right with God. Now, let me say that the Bible sometimes does warn us because 1 Corinthians 11 tells us that many were weak, sickly among them, and some were dying because of their sin. So you can be sick because that's your business. We're not to be judges and everybody else say, oh, he's, he's not doing well. He must have a mess of his spiritual life. That doesn't have, you know, Job would blow that whole thing away, all right? Here's a guy who was righteous before God, and he was going through all kinds of problems. And many people, God puts us through trials and testings. So don't, please, don't fall into that health wealth trap of judging people, spiritual life, because you see something going on in their physical life, all right? We are not the judges. What John means by saying, these things are going well with the spiritual life is spelled out in the next couple of verses. You know, he says, you're, you're doing well. I, I pray your physical life would just match your spiritual because you're doing so well in the spiritual life. And then in verse 3, he says, for I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth. So someone went to John and they're testifying about Gaius as indeed you are walking in the truth. So he's hearing, he's hearing a good report here. This is why the elder can say he knows that Gaius' spiritual health is good. Now, came and testified here are both present participles, which imply that, first of all, members of the church that Gaius was a part of had traveled regularly to Ephesus and reported to John. And secondly, the returning missionaries reported Gaius's generosity. What had happened was some traveling preachers had come to wherever Gaius was. Gaius opened his home to these traveling preachers, as they proclaimed the gospel. He had given them hospitality. He had taken them in. He had taken care of them. Now it says, they came and testified of your truth, the ESV says. This is a good translation because literally that's what it says, your truth. John puts the truth in the emphatic, or you're in the emphatic position in the text, your truth. These individuals came and they brought a report to John of Gaius's truth which was that Gaius' faithfulness to the truth of the message of the gospel was being heard by them. They're going back and saying, he's hanging to the truth. He's believing the truth. He's not moving off base. Remember in 2 John, the secessionists were teaching these false doctrines. Gaius has not been affected by them. He says, and you're walking in the truth. Walking here, peripateo, means to walk around with reference to conduct, behavior, your way of life. You could, we could say he's living in the truth. He, his life is characterized by truth. He, he exemplifies the truth in all he does. The idea is to move 
through life conducting himself within the framework of the truth. Gaius was literally controlled by the truth. Now the phrase here refers to the conduct that results when an individual has truth abiding within him. Remember how John put it back in 1 John 2.6. He says, whoever says he abides in him, in Christ, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So, walking here. He's walking in the truth. And if you say you abide in Christ, then you ought to walk in the same way Christ walked. And to abide, if you remember from 1 John, is the idea of remaining, to dwell, to be close to, to follow, to do what Christ says, to obey His commandments. Walking in the truth. Yeshua told His disciples this. He says, if you keep My commandments, in other words, if you live in obedience, you will abide in My love. And that's what, that's what the abiding is about. It's, it's following you're abiding there. What John is saying in 1 John 2.6 is that we cannot claim to abide in Him unless we behave like Him. The behavior and the conduct of the historical Yeshua is put forth here as a model for believers to emulate. And this presupposes that the readers of this letter had some information about Yeshua's earthly life and ministry with which to base their imitation on. It's reasonable to assume that the primary source was the Gospels. But they knew what it was about. The abiding Christian walks in the commandments. We cannot really say that we love God and we don't walk in the commandments. Love expresses itself in following the divine guidelines and it's foolish for us to say that we love God and not obey Him. Oh, let's talk about walking in the truth. The abiding Christian lives his life imitating Christ and all that he does. Believers, this is why we're here. We're to be showing Christ to the world by the way that we conduct our lives. This is why Yahweh created us. And the most fundamental reality of human existence is that we're made by God in His own image to be representatives of Him in the created world. In the very first chapter of the Bible, we see that Yahweh created us to bear His image. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 said, God, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created... Oops, just male and female? What happened? Where'd the other ones come from? Evolution? What's with the plurality of language here? Who's the us and the our? Who's God talking to? Well, this is a reference to God's heavenly spiritual family. His divine counsel. Now from Philo onward, Jewish commentators generally held that these plurals were used because Yahweh was addressing His divine counsel. But the early post-apostolic fathers, such as Barnabas and Justin Martyr, they saw these plurals as a reference to the Trinity. And I think that's how most Christians see these today. Oh, he's talking about the Trinity. But recent scholars tend to agree with the ancient Jewish opinion. For example, F.M. Cross notes, In both Ugaritic and biblical literature, the use of the first-person plural is characteristic of address in the divine council. The familiar we has long been recognized as the plural address used by Yahweh in His council. Okay? 
So the plural language is important. God is talking to His heavenly family, and with His heavenly family, He discusses creating us, His earthly family. God wanted us to be like His heavenly family. So what does it mean to be created in His image? Well, whatever else it might mean, it includes man and woman. And it's equally possessed by man and woman. We also know that it's not incremental. It's not partial. You're not somewhat created in the image of God. You are or you're not. One either has it or he doesn't. And it's passed on generationally. Notice Genesis 9. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. This is many generations after the flood, and man is still said to be made in the image of God. This is after the fall. So the image includes all people, believers and non-believers. We see here that it's wrong to murder, which would be abortion. Okay, And it's amazing how even people in our society, if they want to have a child, then this is a baby they're having in their womb. But if they don't want it, then it's a fetus and it doesn't, you know, they just change it for whatever they want. No, abortion is murder. Because mankind is made in the image of God. What does it mean then to be created in His image? The image of God is not an ability we have. It is a status. God intends us to be His representatives on the earth. Look at Genesis 1.28. And God blessed him, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. So the, the first phrase here, be fruitful and multiply, means develop a social world, build families, build churches, schools, cities, governments, laws. And then the second phrase, subdue it. Subdue the earth means to harness the natural world, plant crops, build buildings, design computers, compose music. This passage is sometimes called the cultural mandate because it tells us that our original purpose was to create cultures to build civilizations. Well, what does image mean? Our text might be better read this way. Let us make man as our image instead of in our image. Now, as in English, the Hebrew preposition for in can be used in different ways. If I say the spare tires in the trunk, I'm using in for a location. But if I say I hit a curb and my tire is shredded in pieces, I'm using in to indicate a result. If I say I drove somewhere in the car, I'm using in for instrumentality. Or I could tell someone that I work in ministry. And then I'm using in to denote function or role. I work as a pastor teacher. Well, the same is true in Hebrew. So in this text in Genesis 1, in is better translated as. Let us make man as our image, which denotes function or role. We're to be God's agents. We're to be God's representatives on earth. Now, this image was marred in the fall. So now, only believers can truly bear the image of Yahweh. And we can only do this, people, as we live godly lives. The representation idea is seen in Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take 
the name of Yahweh your God in vain. For Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Well, we get this verse so wrong here, okay? The word take here is the Hebrew word nasah, and it means to lift, to bear, to carry. So it says, you shall not bear the name of Yahweh your God in vain. For Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who bears his name in vain. To bear his name is to be his representative. And you need to do that well. We see this in 1 Timothy, or 2 Timothy 2.19. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of Yahweh depart from iniquity. Christians, because we name the name, we're his representatives. We're to depart from iniquity. We're to live lives of holiness. And people are to see Christ in us. In Ephesians 5.1, Paul tells the believers, be imitators of God. <laughs> if you even think about that for a minute, it's like, whoa, that's overwhelming. Be is a present imperative here and has the idea, become. They're to develop continuously into imitators of God. How do we imitate God? What does God do? What does He want? What is he, how do we do that? Again, it goes back to Scripture. We've got to know the Scripture. And just look at the life of Yeshua, all right? Then you'll know God. The Greek word for imitator here is mimetes. So where we get our English word mimic. It means to copy something. What it denotes is an actor. An actor who spends his time and energy in studying the character with a view to reproducing it. We are to imitate God. That's our calling. We're not here to just, you know, God, put us on this earth. Just have a good time. Enjoy your life. Do whatever you want. Make it all about you. No, you're here to imitate God. Now, speaking about the image of God, N.T. Wright states this. It seems to me that God has put humans like an angled mirror in his world so that God can reflect his love and care and stewardship of the world through humans. And so that the rest of the world can praise the creator through humans. See, Paul knew the importance of example in teaching others. He told the Corinthians that he was their father in the gospel. And then he added this. He says, I urge you be imitators of me. Why does he asking believers to imitate him? Because Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. I'm imitating Christ, so you just follow me. Wow, that's powerful, right? He was imitating Christ, who was the perfect image of Yahweh. Paul told the Thessalonians this, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So Paul's living out the command that he's giving believers. He's imitating Christ. Notice what Paul told the Philippians. Philippians 4.9 What you have learned and received, and heard, and seen in me. Anything you saw me do, practice these things. (laughs) What? He's saying, do what I do. You know, the parents who say, do as I say, not as I do, that's not biblical at all, okay? A good parent says, you do whatever I do. Okay, you follow me. What I do, you do. That's what Paul's saying here. Anything you learned, whatever you saw, whatever you heard, just do it. 
Because I'm following Christ. Can we say that to others? Follow me as I follow Christ should be something that we say. The consistent call to the Christian is be like Yahweh. It's Yahweh's purpose that each of us reflect the image of the Father. All humans are God's imagers. But since the fall, only believers who have the Spirit can really do that well. Which means that we need to be doing a good job at this because lost man totally bears God's name in vain. What does this look like practically? Well, as Christians, as children of the Heavenly Father, we have a duty to imitate Christ, to walk like Christ. So we look at the Scriptures, we see Christ, and we say, that's what I'm supposed to do. If He's compassionate, we as His image bearers are to be compassionate, right? If He's loving, we're to be loving. If He's holy, we're to be holy. If He's kind, we're to be kind. If He's forgiving, we're to be forgiving. People look at us, they see Christ. Think of that angled mirror. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another. That should be stamped on every text before it's sent. That should be stamped on any discussion group online. If you just put that, you know, everyone who you know participates in this group has to be kind to one another. That would shut down most of the chat rooms, all right? Tender-hearted, forgiving one another. And here's the standard, as God in Christ forgave you. We're to display Him in all we do and say. This is what it means to walk in the truth. And this is what Gaius was doing. Gaius is imitating Christ. And John is commending him, saying, this is an awesome job you're doing. And then he says this, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in truth. He tells Gaius, you're walking in the truth. Nothing brings me greater than joy than this. Gaius was a child of John in the sense that John was his spiritual father. Now my here is in the emphatic position in the Greek. It literally, my own children. I have no greater joy, he says. That's my highest joy. Let me just say, I understand this. I understand this joy. I have no greater joy than here that my children walk in truth. Whether you're talking about your physical children or your spiritual children, anybody who's been part of this ministry that God has given me, there's no higher joy than to know that they're abiding in the truth, believing the truth, walking in the truth. But in the same sense, when I know that they're not, when I know they're dishonoring God, it grieves me. It's like that's not what we're called to. Notice that John doesn't say, I have no greater joy than to hear of my children are prospering financially. That's not what he says. His focus is on their spiritual lives. Okay? So let me ask you, Berean, are you walking in the truth? Do people see Christ in your actions and responses? Do they see Christ in your marriage? Do they see Him in your work ethic? If you're walking in the truth, you're abiding in Christ, you're going to walk as He walked. See, our life is to be about imitating the Father. That's our calling. On our jobs, at school, in the neighborhood, wherever we are. Imitators. Walking in the truth. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for Gaius, a man who 
John so highly commends, Lord, as someone walking in the truth, abiding in Christ, being an imitator of you, fleshing out the truth of the Word of God. Father, the world so desperately needs people who look like you. Lord, help us to realize we're image bearers. We bear the name of the Lord. Help us not to bear it in vain. May people, as they see our lives, Lord, realize who you are. Thank you, Father, for this awesome privilege, this opportunity. Dear Lord, help us not to bear your name in vain. Amen.